0: Welcome to The Practice of Theology. My name is Tyler Kirkpatrick, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I serve as one of the pastors of Cross Point Church in Columbus, Georgia. The Practice of Theology exists to help the local church engage theology on a deeper level and learn how it applies to daily life. Today I'm talking with Dr. Vern Poitras about redeeming science. Dr. Poitras currently serves as Distinguished Professor of New Testament, Biblical Interpretation, and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania, where he has taught for more than 40 years. Vern is the author of numerous books and articles on biblical interpretation, language, and science, including The Mystery of the Trinity, The Lordship of Christ, Reading the Word of God in the Presence of God, Redeeming Science, and countless others. To find out more about Vern, you can check out his website at frame-poethras.org, which is a website dedicated to providing the works of John Frame and Vern Poethras, along with many other of their resources for free. It was such an honor to have this conversation on science with a modern day theological giant like Vern Poethras. For many years now, I've been helped by the works of Dr. Poethras, and this episode has proven to be no different. So I hope it helps you as much as it has me. Dr. Poitras, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. It really is a pleasure to have you as a guest.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay,
0: before we jump into our topic at hand, could you tell us how you came to know the Lord?
1: My parents were Christian believers, uh, for which I'm really grateful. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the Lord's providence, uh, even before I was born. Uh, Yeah. So they went to a Bible-believing church. I heard the gospel from an early age, and it may be that I believed uh, uh, even, you know, in that dim past. Hmm. When I was nine years old, I went to a church summer camp, and I heard the gospel clearly. I heard an invitation for people to come forward if they wanted to commit themselves to christ and Mm. to uh to be saved by him i knew that i was a sinner i knew that i i could not uh, be reconciled to god except through christ at that early age at nine years old Mm. and so i made that commitment and uh, then we were part of a baptist church. So when I was home, came home from the summer camp, uh, I uh, started a baptism class. It, the pastor had a baptism class uh-huh. to prepare candidates for baptism. So I was baptized when I was nine years old, and it was real. You mm. know that was even if I had believed at an earlier age, it was a significant transition. Mm. I knew I was doing it. It wasn't just the family. I was making a a definite and uh, a commitment, and and uh, and baptism itself was, you know, expression of that commitment. So mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, I became a Christian either then or possibly before, but certainly <laughs> right. yep. by then. And of course, when uh, I became a believer at an early age like that, there was still a lot of growing to be done. Right but the lord implanted in my heart a real interest in uh, praying to him and reading the bible and my parents were devoted churchgoers so i was going with them and uh evening as well evening sunday evening as well and and uh, the lord used that to have me grow so that was well, that's the story but then you know it yeah. it continued through college and beyond
0: yeah, certainly. Amen. Thank you so much. I truly am so very thankful for you and just your long ministry. You have been such a help to the church, and I think many of the listeners will know, if they don't already, that you are a professor of theology, and you've taught and written on the topic of theology for a very long time. So how is it that you're so interested in science and mathematics?
1: Well, that's part of God's story and dealing with my life uh, as well as my conversion. Hmm. Uh, because uh, from an early age, I was interested in mathematics. In kindergarten, I was I was uh, entertaining myself by doing arithmetic problems oh, because my. I had an I had an older brother. I, they didn't teach arithmetic in kindergarten those days, uh-huh. but I had an older brother, so I kind of you know uh, peeked over his shoulder and <laughs> and when he was doing things and when. My father would sometimes help him out, mm-hmm. and I got interested in it. And so, so you know, I wanted—I uh, was fascinated by mathematics. I wanted to be an engineer at first because I enjoyed uh, things like uh, tinker toys, who is uh, kind of the uh, old form of Legos. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I enjoyed constructing things, so I wanted to be an engineer. And then by junior high, I found out about algebra, I wanted to be just a mathematician. It mm. was just beautiful what I was seeing in mathematics. I know not everybody sees it that way. <laughs> I'll take your word Lord, for it. Yeah. But the <laughs> Lord gave me gifts in mathematics. Mm. Uh, I won mathematics contests and that kind of thing. But I, it, it was partly because I enjoyed the, the subject. Right. So I wanted to be then a college teacher of mathematics on a secular campus and to help the Christians bear witness to mm. Christ. In that environment, mm-hmm. and uh, but I became more and more interested in studying the Bible and theology myself, and to the point where I said, "You know, this is going to be frustrating to me if I don't go to seminary sometime." Yeah. So I had that in mind even when I started into grad school. I I went to grad school for a PhD in mathematics. Uh, but I had that in mind. But halfway through the doctoral program, I realized that the primary interest of my heart had changed. Yeah, I was, It was Bible and theology more than mathematics, which had been a genuine love uh, all the way. Uh, and it, it wasn't that I saw, stopped loving it, because I believe it's God's uh, design that we right. see in mathematics. Yep. But, but I decided, you know, the Lord is showing me by means of my interests that I ought to consider shifting in major vocational way to just leave mathematics aside as a hobby or a mm. little more and, uh, and devote my rest of my life for Bible and theology. Yeah. Amen. And uh, I had to tell the Lord, well, you can make me anything you want. <laughs> yeah. And I can, I'll be a pastor if you want me to, <laughs> but, but I knew I wasn't a people person very mm. much. And so I thought you're gonna. I told him you're gonna have to help me an awful lot (laughs) if if you make me a pastor because I knew that you you have to be not you have to know the Bible of course. Yep. But you also have to be able to 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 deal well with people Mm. and their sufferings and their Mm. problems. So then, but I decided I'm halfway through my doctoral program. I should finish it, which I did. And then I was started being a student, so I taught mathematics for one year at Fresno State College. It happens mm. it, it, where my father taught Spanish, uh, so I taught for one year, and I tried to do it in a Christian way mm. to show its roots in God and His wisdom. And and I that was one of the reasons why, in fact, I did it. So let's see if you can do it. <laughs> but <laughs> but then I went to seminary. Mm. So, and so I left it behind. But you're asking me the question because then I wrote a book, but that was something like 30 years later. That's right. Because I thought, oh, this is just going to be at a, a, most a hobby, right? Because I love mathematics and science. I enjoy mm-hmm. reading about them, but it's going to be a hobby. But after 30 years, I realized that God had given me some ideas through the seminary and through my own reading of the Bible that I had enough to write a book. And it was going to be a book. There were already books, good books. There are some good and some bad, by the way. That's right, yeah. (laughs) But there were some good books already about the days of creation and about evolution. Those are the two hot-button issues. Mm -hmm. And there's good reason why they're hot-button
0: issues. That's right, yeah.
1: But I decided that's not what I want to do because it's already been done Mm. in pretty good way. I'm going to write a book that is really about science as a whole and why and how it fits into who God is in a Christian view of the world. Yeah. So it's kind of theology of science Mm. of saying, given what the Bible says about God and his rule of the world, how does science fit into that? I felt that was a real need because it gives a context for science, which is is you want that to be thoroughly Christian. You don't want to just be piecemeal right. interacting with this bit and that bit within science. But just understand that the whole scientific enterprise is possible only because of God.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And in fact, this conversation is going to be centered around one of those books, which is entitled Redeeming Science, And so we will, we're going to work our way through and talk about creation a little bit and, you know, maybe for a moment, theistic evolution, uh, just to kind of help people to see what kind of questions are being asked and the conversations that are being had. Uh, But to begin, though, I want to ask a simple question. Is science antagonistic to Christianity? That is to say, are these two things meant to be at odds with one another?
1: They're not meant to be. In the design of God, but they have become, unfortunately,
2: mm-hmm.
1: through human sin. Yeah. Human sin penetrates, unfortunately, into every area of life. And if you're a Christian believer, as I am, then you've had that experience, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, right. of saying you fight against it, but then you find subtle forms of sin, and those subtle things that penetrate into all the academic. Uh, disciplines. In the area of science, it's often in the form of the basic assumptions about scientific law. Mm. Because many scientists, the average scientist doesn't really think about this. That they, I, I went to Caltech as an undergraduate. I loved it. But I know the mentality the Mentality is, let's immerse ourselves in the, the fun of doing science. And yeah. It is fun for the people who are who are uh, attracted to it. And we don't care why this works. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the why, however, is it works because God has made the world. Yeah. yeah. God has made your mind Mm. to be in tune with his mind because you're made in the image of God naturally. But if you hate God, and it it basically, that's what it amounts to when we rebel against God, we don't Mm. want God to be God. We want ourselves to be God. Yeah, that's right. So that's why I put it in that, that, uh, Harsh way because it, it is a, an appalling thing to be a rebel against God and to want to be God. But what do you do with scientific law? Because the scientific law is really an expression of God's wisdom mm. and of His word that's commanding things in the world. You make it into an impersonal something, you make it into a mechanism rather than a personal God who's ruling the world. So you have a substitute God. Mm-hmm. That's what it happens. And it, that is going to subtly affect everything, but particularly it affects things like the resurrection of Christ. Now that's yeah. an obvious thing. Now, the resurrection of Christ, the people in the first century knew, as well as we know, the people that people don't rise from the dead. Yep, it's not possible. Yep. <laughs> right They knew it. We know it. But it happened anyway. Why? Yeah. Because God had a special purpose, and Christ was fully human, but also fully God. Yeah. So he was unique among all the human beings who've ever lived, and what he did to accomplish the salvation of the world and to bear our sins on the, in his body on the tree What he did was unique, and the reward of God the Father is unique in raising raising him from the dead. Once you understand that, it makes complete sense, but it doesn't fit into the idea of impersonal law, right? Mm -hmm. So the person who rejects God is going to say, This is impossible, forget it. Even though there's plenty of evidence, you know, we wanted to go into the evidence of the testimony of people. Uh, who saw him after he was raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. But that shows how science gets infected with bad religion, essentially is what it is, right? It's the sin of rebellion. So you make a substitute that is an impersonal law. So that's why people feel in such distress. The Christians now feel in such distress of feeling science is antagonistic, Mm to my faith well there are certain things in science that have been turned that way but it's unnatural yeah right because you actually need a god who has both made a world and made you yeah <laughs> so that your mind is in tune with his mind yeah you actually need that to do science at all
0: yeah yeah absolutely well in the in the book you actually say that all scientists do believe in god so help us understand what you mean when you say something like that, because I think that yeah. that's, that's going to be helpful as, as it relates to your last answer.
1: Yes. Well, I said it in a deliberately a provocative way, mm-hmm. <laughs> because, but it's, the, the purpose is to get people's attention, to get them thinking about the fact that every scientist has to believe that there's law out there, yep. that he isn't just inventing laws in order to make a name for himself. He's got to believe there's a law out there, but the law transcends the circumstances.
2: Mm.
1: And if you go through and you look what features the law has to have, it has to be the same in all places and at all times. Well, that's two attributes of God. Omnipresence is at all places and eternality is at all times. And the the law is also immaterial Mm -hmm. because you see the effects of it in the world. But it's it's more like an idea. It's not material atoms. The atoms obey the law, you see? So it's immaterial. You can go through. You have attribute after attribute that are attributes of God. Yeah. The reason why that's so is because the law is just God speaking, right? And God's speech is actually divine. Yep. So it's no wonder that these show divine attributes. And the, the scientists have to have those things even if they're atheists on paper Mm -hmm. they have to believe that in order to to have confidence in doing their science so what happens is where they will balk with all this list of attributes is the area of personality right so you can have everything else you think except it's all impersonal Mm -hmm. even that as i indicate my book it doesn't really work because the law Has to be rational, and it has to be language-like in order for us to be able to grab onto it in our own thinking. And those two things, rationality and linguistic uh, competence, they belong to human beings, personal uh, uh, beings, Mm -hmm. and not to animals. Uh, Yeah, I know a dog can understand (laughs) you know a certain number of words, but the dog's capabilities have nowhere near the complexity that you need to do science. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, for sure.
0: Okay, so for Christians, as we seek to develop an informed understanding of science, where, where do we begin in terms of the Bible?
1: Yeah, well, we begin with God. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was tempted to say begin with Genesis 1, <laughs> and that is about God, but you have to recognize that above all, it's about God, a yeah. God who really is thoroughly sovereign Mm. and who says, let there be light and there is light. And that God is a personal God who speaks, right? And who commands Adam and who has communion, personal communion with Adam before the fall. That picture of God has to be the most fundamental thing in order to understand the Bible itself. Because if there's not a personal God who writes the Bible through human instruments, then the Bible amounts to the best kind of human groping, yeah right uh, religious groping
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and that's not adequate. We have to know God you can't be satisfied with just the best ideas that human beings have got <laughs> mm-hmm. right you've got to have God tell you who He is, which is what the Bible does. Now, when God tells you that, then it also opens a different view of science because God can act miraculously because He can raise Christ from the dead. It's all according to His plan. It's Mm. all rational, but it's not confined to the what people think of as a mechanical law, right? So it's the law of gravity, right? It's the law of gravity you think of as a mechanical law. No, it isn't. It's God ruling the world consistently, Mm. right? So that is i think groundbreaking in terms of the difference between the bible's view of god and of science then yeah versus what the average person in our neighborhood thinks that science is doing Mm.
0: yeah no that's really helpful too and and i appreciate your response to that answer because I, i do think sometimes we do like exactly like you say certainly Genesis 1 is revealing a lot about God, who he is, and what he has chosen to do in his sovereign will. However, before Genesis 1 ever was, God was. And I think sometimes we do forget that as we we think through things, uh, all the way from science to ethics, morality, God has always existed, and these things are a part of what he has created and put into existence. And so I do want to enter into Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit and ask this, is our interpretive method important as we seek to understand science, particularly as it relates to Genesis 1 and 2?
1: I think so. I mean, for one thing, there people can there are some people who are intimidated by science, mm. right? So they will invent implausible readings of Genesis in right. order to fit it in with the claims of science. But but those claims need to be sifted because they're contaminated by sin. But our own interpretation of Genesis has to be sifted because it's contaminated by sin, too. Yeah. Genesis is yep. perfect, the perfect word of God. And uh, on that score, you know, one of the first things I would say, sometimes we take for granted, but ought not to be taken for granted, is that we need Christ to redeem us in our interpretation because we've got these sinful tendencies and everybody, unfortunately, everybody wants to find in the Bible what pleases him rather than what God actually said. We've all got that tendency, even as Christian believers. Now, God is fundamentally turns us around because we've understood I need to be, we've admitted I need to be saved. I need Christ the savior. I need the holy spirit of Christ to be sent into me mm. to transform me so I'll understand the bible correctly. Yeah. So that's important so that we are able to humble ourselves before God's word in scripture rather than to impose on it, here's what I want it to mean. Mm. You know, that's and it's not only Genesis but it's every part of the Bible, whenever it has something uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, that's right.
2: uh,
1: And uncomfortable as over against, let's say the values and ideas of our, that surround us in our modern world, right? We can absorb those without even thinking. And then we're uncomfortable or worse. We just say, I can't accept that. Yeah, that's right. Well, then then that's your problem. It's not the Bible's problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, Although I chuckle at that, but it isn't a laughing matter in the end, right? It's a very serious thing right. because it goes back to this the remaining sin mm. that we have, which, uh, which gives us a pride in our own abilities and a pride in our own ideas. So we have to come to it there. Another thing that I would say fairly early on, is and it is a matter of humility to recognize that the Bible God uh, addressed it to ordinary people, yeah and and we think of ourselves as superior often yep. because you know we have all this technology around us and and uh, we have these poor, benighted tribes and people in the <laughs> ancient world who didn't know yeah. a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, in many respects, they were just like us, right and and god is addressing them and he's addressing cultures I, I think of some of these tribes in in papua new guinea isolated tribes with isolated languages there's something like uh a thousand or more languages in papua new guinea alone right and many of these tribes have no contact previously with technology and with mm-hmm. With what we would call advanced civilization, yeah. well, they have their own civilization, but it's, but it's, uh, it's not technologically advanced. Mm-hmm. So you go to them with the Bible and with the story in Genesis, and it's talking to them on the same terms it's talking to us, right? Right. it's, uh, it's talking about the sun and the sky. It's talking about the plants around them, and that God created it all. But it's talking to them in ordinary terms. It's not giving them a scientific account, which they couldn't understand, right? but it's telling them what they need to know about God. It's this sense of ordinary language. And some of the modern interpreters, because we're more and more pressured by the findings of science, some of the modern interpreters have talked about phenomenal language. It's the language of appearances. Yep. Well, that sounds like, that label sounds like it means, yeah, it isn't really true. It's just the way it appears to be, but actually God that made the world so it would appear the way it appears. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. It's real. <laughs> and it's more basic in some ways than science because you can't do science unless you're first a human being who has a body who is interacting with the world. So, that language of appearances is actually really basic. And one of the things in my book is to remind people of that because sometimes we get swept away and feel science gives us the real thing. And the real thing is that. Let's say to take uh, it's a controversial thing. The real thing is that the Earth rotates,
2: Mm.
1: right? And it's just appearance that the sun rises. Well, the sun does rise because (laughs) that's one way. It's a true way of describing it. I remember of an account where it came from D. A. Carson
2: Mm.
1: when he was growing up and his father. Uh, showed him a newspaper article that said the Bible is an error because it describes the sun as rising. and We know that's not true. So he showed it to his son. He said, what do you think of that? And Don, who was just a boy at the time, he didn't know quite what to say. And then his father pointed to something in the the, uh, corner of the uh, page, sunrise, (laughs) uh, 6 a.m. or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) The language of sunrise is still with us. Right. (laughs) That's its perennial language because it doesn't presuppose any scientific theory. That's, it was so wise of God Mm. to do that, Mm. but, but people can feel insulted. See, and I think that's part of our problem. They can feel insulted that God doesn't talk to them in in the supposedly learned uh, ways of modern science. Right, right. When actually he says, look, I know all about that modern science. My point is uh, that uh, the language of appearances is is the way God wisely talks. He can talk to every uh, tribe Mm -hmm. and every uh, people group in the whole world. And it's valid language. It's a valid description, provided you realize it's not doing the same kind of thing that a scientific theory is doing. So uh, once you look at the Bible that way, you can accept both that it's true and that it doesn't comment directly on a lot of the details of scientific theories.
0: Mm, Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. So, you know, as as you think about, you know, applying that principle to Genesis 1 and 2 and thinking about some of the arguments that are made in particular about, well, one one of the biggest would be, you know, the word day, that Hebrew word yom. Adam and Eve are they literal? Is is this allegorical? Are they are they just pictures? How exactly are we to understand and interpret these things in Genesis one and two? Because that will change the way we view something like science.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, it's a good question and a controversial question, as you know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have asked it, <laughs> <But, laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but in in my book on redeeming science. Uh, I do get into that. The mm-hmm. whole book, of course, is is much larger, right? It's right. A Christian view of science, but as an example of how to work through a problem, I want to say you have to pay the closest meticulous attention to the Bible and mm-hmm. everything it says. You also have to pay attention to what people claim they have discovered as scientists, although that has to be sifted. Mm. But but there's an element of common grace in that God gives gifts to even non-Christians. Right. So we have to d- deal with both of those things. And in the book, I give 10 different views that p- Christian people have come up with in an effort to see how these two areas, right, the, the uh, input from science and the input from the Bible, how they fit together— I, right. I must say also uh, remind people that they're not on the same level because the Bible is the infallible Word of God and the pronouncements of scientists are fallible right so but but our interpretation of the Bible is fallible too so mm-hmm. so that leads to when you've got an apparent discrepancy you can't uh, you can't have let's say a kind of a of a simple recipe that will automatically solve the problems every time. Mm -hmm. You got to look carefully. What does the Bible actually say as opposed to what I think it says? Mm -hmm. And particularly as ordinary language, as addressing Israelites and other people who are pre-scientific. And what do the scientists say and on what basis? Right. And one of the things about science is, that a lot of science and most of the successes of science are based on experiments, repeated experiments. So those experiments are actually looking at the current regularities of how God rules things today, mm. right? And that, it, it, that the plants grow up from the ground because God makes them grow, but he uses processes, right? So there's water and minerals that come up through the roots and so on. You describe all this, that's what God does. So, but that's what he does now. When he created the very first plants, all bets are off, so to speak. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because he could do that miraculously. He could do that in an exceptional way. Mm. So that's one of the things to bear in mind, experimental science is looking at the regularities today. Mm-hmm. Historical science, so-called, sometimes called that, right, reconstructing once for all events in the past. That's much trickier because you can't do experiments on the past. Right. So the origin of the first life, the origin of the first human beings, the origin of the universe itself, uh, those are not repeatable <laughs> events, right? That's you right. can't put them in a test tube. Yeah. So... So, there's more questions that have to be asked mm. in those kinds of cases. So, so in my book, I go through 10 different views of what Christians who have, who want to believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. 10 different views that they've come up with. And I believe that's a help. I believe some of the views are more attractive than others, mm-hmm. but it's a help to people to realize, look, let's go through these views and uh, weigh them yourself, yep. right? Make up your own mind about them. Don't just believe something because your Bible teacher has said, right? right? Or because your scientist has said, right?
0: Yeah. No, and that's really helpful. And, and, and the reason really to ask that question is to ask a, a follow-up question. Is, is there any real theological danger in interpreting Genesis 1 and 2 improperly? So, for instance, can we still properly understand the Bible and the gospel if we believe that a day in Genesis means a thousand or a million years? I want to make sure that people who hold these varying views contend with, does this change my view of the Bible as a whole, and does it change my understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. It changes it only if it leads you to believe the Bible is not true, Mm -hmm. right? That would be a monumental watershed Yeah, because then you couldn't necessarily trust anything it said on any subject. Now, uh, the denomination where I'm ordained and to which I belong, the Presbyterian Church in America, and some of the other denominations like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, because this is controversial, they've actually drawn up some guidelines. They've had special study committees. And what they say is, look, there's a range of views. Mm Mm-hmm that we think are compatible with the divine authority of the Bible and with the doctrines that we stand for as the people of God right. uh, following the Bible. There's a range of views, but there's a boundary. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's certain things that you have to be aware are going beyond the boundary. I think that's the way to deal with it because, for instance, if you believe, well, let me take one good end of it, right? One of the theories is the theory of mature creation, right, that says that God created the, the world in more or less uh, in six twenty-four hour days, but He created it so that the end of the process, it was mature mm-hmm. and it looked mature, right, and coherently mature. So maybe it looks. Fourteen billion years old, as for the universe. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a shock to most people, but we weren't there. How do we <laughs> right. know? Right. <laughs> so that's an example of something that's a rather unusual view in some respects. But it doesn't matter uh, for for you know what we do theologically, because it's compatible with the truth of of those chapters. Mm-hmm. What wouldn't be compatible? is if you say for instance that the origin of mankind was merely by a chance evolutionary process right. that god did wasn't involved in right. at all which is some of the s- story of science mm-hmm. because then it would not be we wouldn't have a fully personal relation to god god you know, we just happen on the scene yeah, and God yeah. does the best he can with something that he doesn't control. Well, that's going to be devastating. The other thing about that gradualistic picture is that there's no clear origin for sin. Mm. So what often happens is that sin disappears. They're just bad things that are part of human nature. Yeah, that's right. But then if sin is no longer defined as a rebellion against God that mm-hmm. is personal, but it rather it's something innate in In our metaphysical composition, it's something innate in Mm -hmm. our genes, so to speak, and not personal. We can't help it. Mm -hmm. And so we're not responsible for it. And that changes the needs of redemption as well. Yeah, that's right. So what happens is if you change the meaning of sin, you change the meaning of redemption from sin. Mm -hmm. And you change the meaning of the work of Christ. And pretty soon you have no gospel yeah that's right so so now i think it's worth saying that people sometimes can be inconsistent right so that maybe they will take an evolutionary view of human origins because the scientists of that they're talking to have told them they have to but it just is there on the shelf and when they read the bible they they realize they're sinners right and that they yep. need christ yeah so they can still be saved they're just inconsistently uh believing yeah but that's dangerous right because that that one thing about the um the change in the definition of sin could eat into everything else
0: mm Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. Okay, so is is something like theistic evolution a a happy medium between intelligent design and evolution? Is that something that we as Christians should feel comfortable with? You know, maybe, and and I know I'm kind of asking what your opinion is, but you know, could you help us think through that? Because it it is quite appealing to to many.
1: Right. Well, again, we want to say in charity that. We are. We don't want to judge human hearts, mm-hmm. right? The person can be saved with many inconsistencies in right. theology. Right. Uh, salvation is by faith, not by orthodoxy. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. But 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 faith has to be faith in the real Christ.
0: Mm.
1: And so, actually, the contents of your belief do matter. Fortunately, God is the judge, right? On the level we're talking about, no mm. human being can judge the secrets of the human heart so we have to refrain from judging on that level at the same time we have to be concerned for people to say if you believe certain things out of that in fact let's say the doctrine of sin then is this going to eat into your faith and is it going to be soul destroying so yeah. so we can't be mm-hmm. just indifferent so oh, it doesn't matter but the thing about theistic evolution In terms of my opinion, if we talk about the doctrine and not the people, right? Right, yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's what I want to do.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then what I would say is there's a whole book critiquing it, edited by Wayne Grudem and Stephen Meyer and uh, J.P. Moreland, an excellent book that I would recommend, and saying various reasons, scientific, philosophical, and theological, why it doesn't hold up. Mm Mm-hmm so so i would agree yeah it doesn't hold up <laughs> uh, but it's an attempt made by people who have uh, who have swallowed too much of the darwinian narrative right. the, the, the story of how things originated but that story is full of holes yeah it's yep. full of holes first of all because god is a god who can work miracles right so you can never say Oh, this had to take place purely gradualistic, or it had to take place without any involvement of God. You can't say that. Mm-hmm. Some of the theistic evolutionists, by the way, do say God yeah, was right. involved, but they're kind of they're kind of vague about
2: mm-hmm.
1: just what that amounts to. So uh, that's one of the holes. The other holes, it's more technical, but I think there's all kinds of holes scientifically. Mm. One of the things that's kind of a secret about uh, historical biology is that there are all kinds of unexplained things, and that the m- m- great mass of biologists believe in a gradualistic chance Darwinian origin for all of life. They believe that not because of science, but because they presuppose it. That's right. Because the alternative is to say God was involved, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So if you have no alternative, then you say, well, somehow or other, the first cell got going, which is about uh, what yep. origin of life. I mean, they they are still struggling with that, a monumental yep. struggling because the cells that we examine are incredibly complex, mm. and uh, a dead cell can't be put back together and made life. Yeah, that's right. Even if you have all the molecules. That's right. So. So, the, the origin of life is a tremendous problem, but you're, you're kind of whistling through the graveyard, as it were, you mm-hmm. know, because the alternative is the ghost, right, which you fear, yep. namely God. It yep. isn't it isn't ghost as we know it, but it's <laughs> right. God that you fear. Mm-hmm. And so, there's no alternative in terms of an explanation, Except a gradualistic one, a chance one. Yeah, and that. So even though there are all these scientific difficulties, the people still believe it's it, that that is credulity. Yep. it's believing in spite of the evidence. Yep, and but that's not talked about now. That's where I would recommend the people who are there's an intelligent design community, and it's a broad umbrella, right? There are people who right. are not even Christian right. believers. Yep. but they've gotten tired of these made up stories that the mainstream Darwinists are telling, because and they realize that the don't whole water. There are mm-hmm. all kinds of difficulties. And so they've gone over and joined intelligent design community. And there's plenty of good work being done there showing, look, there are all kinds of things that cannot be explained Yeah. Uh, by this narrative of chance and uh, time. Well, in your
0: book, and this goes right off of what you've just said, but you make a really excellent and helpful point for us as believers as we are seeking to think through science and the claims that science makes and the truths of scripture you make a point that the bible has a redemptive story right it's a a redemptive priority even and so even as we're thinking about something like science in genesis 1 and 2 the priority actually is is christ right? All of these things are true and they are good and they are godly, but the point is Jesus. So how does this understanding help to guide us as we interact with and think about science well?
1: Right. Yeah, I could put it very basically. Mm. If you understand, not you personally, but anyone who's listening, if you understand the seriousness and depth of your own sin, Mm. you will be desperate for salvation. And yeah. you also understand Christ is the only savior. Mm. So you cry out to him and you ask to be saved. But with that comes the appreciation that Christ is now Lord, Lord of your life. He yeah. owns you. And if he's a Lord, you trust him and his ideas and his words more than you trust your own. Now that that is very hard mm. for any, Sinner, <laughs> yeah. because we want to be God. Still, we got a little bit of that left in us to trust Christ and His Word more than you trust yourself. And that means when you listen to Christ in the pages of the New Testament, you find that He endorses the Old Testament as the Word of God. So now you've got to trust the whole Bible. But that's what you need, actually, it's an aspect of the total package of salvation to hear the word of Christ through the scripture and to be guided in our minds, in our behavior, in our emotions, in every area of life. That's how we get saved. I mean, the beginning of it is faith in Christ, but then it works out. That's why the Bible has to be so central. And that means when you come to Genesis 1-3, you must cling to what the Bible says more than you cling to any human source mm. of information and any yeah. claims about what happened in the past.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's wonderful. All right, well, with the final question, I want to thank, and you mentioned this earlier, you mentioned this feeling that many scientists have, in particular Christian scientists, and maybe even those who are are trying to merge evolutionary theory and intelligent design, you mentioned this idea of feeling pressured. So as we think about, you know, it's the title of your book, Redeeming Science, how are we to make sense of the things that appear to be scientifically proven and yet go against what we sincerely believe to be the truths of scripture?
1: You're right. Well, it's partly having humility to re-examine both what you thought the Bible taught and what the scientist's claims are now that mm. the, the second area is actually much more difficult in some ways because many of the the claims that are put out to the popular audiences you have to dig through several layers to find yeah. technical papers to find out what what is this really based on mm-hmm. what is the experiments or what is the arguments that it's really based on and that's where we do need the christian community yeah right? Because not everybody can be an expert in all these areas. So, you try to read the best that you can, but don't just read one side, you know, yeah, if you're going to right. do that, yep. because Christians disagree among themselves. And and so, you want to read more than one source and then do the best you can to decide where the evidence you have, but don't think you have to make up your mind on everything. Again, mm-hmm. the Bible is designed to give us guidance for life even when we're uncertain about technical details in science. Right.
0: Yeah, that's so helpful. And and thank you for that response. I'm sure that will be a help to to many people. Well, Dr. Poitras, thank you so much for your time. It really has been a joy to talk about this topic. And, you know, I think it's one that at times can feel daunting. I I think many of us just think, well, for me, I'm just a pastor. What do I know about science or or any number of things? But this really has been an encouraging conversation to remind us that God's Word is first and foremost, and it is absolutely undefined deniably true. And so I pray that those who would listen would cling to the Word of God and that they would be humble and that they would examine what they believe and why they believe it, and that they would pray and ask that God would give them the insight that they need. So thank you for helping us have this conversation and think through these things well.
1: Okay, well, thank you for inviting me, and the Lord be with you.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, you can help others find and be encouraged by this content by leaving a rating and review wherever you're listening.